day three in a race, it doesn't really matter if you haven't been doing those hundred mile bike rides. It's, it's, can you mentally push through what you're putting yourself through? Can you, you got a side wind going on and rain and it's dark and you're tired and you've been, you know, riding for hours. It's, it's, I think sometimes it, it's not really what you've been doing training wise. It's, it's really kind of more um, experience that kicks in. Welcome to the Dark Zone, an adventure racing podcast. This is your host, Brian Gatins. It's Thanksgiving weekend 2021 here in America. All the best to our friends and family, both in America and around the world. For today's episode, we're joined by Mary Chandler. Mary is one of the more prolific American adventure racers. She recorded this podcast after competing in the World Championships and after winning the National Championships as part of Team Wadali. She is thoughtful, funny, smart, energetic, and a powerful, powerful racer. And we are delighted to have her join us today on The Dark Zone. The first question I have for you as we dive into this is how tired are you right now after all that <laughs> racing? Uh, I'd say right now, actually, I'm starting to get kind of antsy to, to get another race in. I, I finally uh, feel recovered and ready to go. I think it's been two, two, two full weeks. I'm going on my third week, so uh, I feel pretty good, actually. So how many hours a night are you sleeping now? Uh, my normal, which is like nine. nine. You, were, you were as high as 15 <laughs> I, I when do, you first I, got I back? I do sleep a lot. I, you know, no children, so I don't really have a work schedule. So um, I, I get plenty of sleep. But after after the race, it was like, you know, 10 to, 10 to noon I was sleeping. So It's around the clock. And obviously, if, if the, for those of us that have done long-form races such as the one that you've done, especially two back-to-back, the sleeping and the eating – they become your primary hobbies after the race is done. Yeah, they really do. I, I I don't really realize how hungry or tired I was until after, like, you know, the very next night. I always I always say that, like, the second shower is always the best shower because the first one you don't remember. You're just like, I just want to get out of these wet socks. And, you know, first shower you've had in a week. Um, the second shower is always the best. And then after that first night of sleep, then you actually, it's amazing how quickly you start to feel normal. Exactly, and your body begins to recover. So, yeah. so, let, so before we get to the sleeping, the eating, let's back up just a little bit. So, so Mary, uh, for our listeners that are new to the dark zone, Mary is safe to say is one of the more accomplished American adventure racers. Um, there's a pretty good shot that if you see a race list, you'll see Mary's name on it. Um, off the top of your head, Mary, how many races do you think you do a year? Uh, a year, I usually try and get probably four to five expedition races a year, which is kind of crazy, I guess. Um, and then another handful of, you know, mountain bike races, a couple of 24 hour races, it kind of, I wouldn't say I'm really consistent in my racing. It's just kind of what, what falls in my lap. I'm a very good last minute racer. Like if somebody calls me up and says, Hey, we need a teammate. I'm usually the person that can jump in and do that. So, um, I have a tendency to not really plan out my race schedule ahead of time. I, I have a trouble with commitment, but, um, once, once it falls into place, basically if I have at least, you know, a month to two months in between an expedition race. I'm pretty comfortable with that. So, And and for those uh, who are learning about adventure racing, we usually qualify an expedition race as usually being around five days or so. Four to five days would be an expedition level adventure race. True. What's the longest race you've ever done? I believe I had maybe three races that were around eight days. I raced Expedition Alaska. Um, we did, uh, I did the World Champs in Costa Rica. I don't remember what year that was, maybe 2000. 15 2014 that was eight days um and even i did eco challenge fiji oh i think that was only like seven but um personally i prefer three three to four days is kind of my my favorite spot anything after that it just starts to become a blur and uh i don't really remember what was six days what was eight days it's it's all kind of the same for me yeah and that's part of the the twilight zone experience of being an adventure racer is that when we go off on these races between the maps that we receive, the teammates that we're with, and the courses open to us, we really have very little contact with the rest of the world, and the days begin to yeah. bleed together. Um, I would assume, and, and what I've heard about Alaska, which I think might have been in 2015, I might be guessing there, yeah. that, no, was, that was tough for a lot of racers because it was summertime, and so they really didn't have darkness. That was actually what made it easy. It was most, it was amazing. Um, yeah, I think I used the same batteries through like three nights, and um, 
and if you were in the canopy, like back in the trees, that was when you needed a headlamp. But if you were like out, you know, on the glacier or wherever, you hardly even needed any light. Like this, the sun was setting and the moon was rising. And then it was like all of a sudden the sun is rising and the moon is setting. It was maybe two hours of twilight. And uh, yeah, it was fantastic. I think that actually made things better. But um, but yeah, again, you start to lose count or you lose track of the days and what's going on. And um yeah, that was that was definitely a tough one for sure. So clearly, you weren't you weren't born this prolific and adventure racer. Uh, maybe you were. <laughs> I could be wrong about that. So walk us through your origin story. How did you learn about adventure racing? It's it's funny. Um, you know, my mom will tell stories now how we'd go cross country skiing when I was little, and I was always the one that wanted to carry the backpack, and I was always the one that would you know try and take take on everything and 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 decide, you know, where we wanted to go or what to do. But, um, I don't have a family that is a big athletic family. Both my sisters ran cross country and track. They're both older than me. So when it was my turn to join a team, I I ran cross country and track. And, um, it wasn't till, you know, like most adventure racers, eco challenge was going on. And, um, I happened to be watching the very last year and I was running for an Olympic um, development program out in California. And I happened to say, you know, man, I really want to try that. I think, I think I could do that. That looks amazing. And, um, one of my teammates, boyfriends was an adventure racer. And she said, when you're ready, call up Mike, he'll take you out. And, um, I did a five hour race and I kind of let him go. I was hooked immediately. What do you think for someone who, who had uh, strong talent when it came to running and I know you're in the Olympic development program and you had an injury that interfered with that going from from being a a, a cross-country racer a track racer to into adventure racing feels like a pretty big leap what was it about adventure racing in the beginning that really appealed to you i think the team aspect um running was becoming so individual individualized i was on a big program i had great teammates they were like really good friends but when you when the gun went off it was i need to beat you it wasn't, you know, I'm not going to help you win. I'm not going to help you pace you unless, you know, unless that was part of the plan. Um, but it became so individualized, even in workouts. Um, I was starting to, you just felt too competitive with your own people. Um, and then my first adventure race, it was, it was amazing how much you had to work together, help each other out. Even, even as a new racer, I didn't really know what I was doing, but I was still able to contribute. Um, it was just, I don't know. It was a really cool feeling. And the amount of, you know, as the races get longer, obviously the suffering increases and it's just, it's far easier to do when you're with good people around you. Right. I don't know how solo races do it. I solo racers do it. I, I really don't. I, it's, <laughs> I see a solo racer running around at three in the morning on a 24 hour course and they just look miserable. And I think had they had, you know, a lot of times they get so excited to see another team. Um, so it's, yeah, I think for me, it was just the sheer working together with somebody else, um, whether it's one person or three. It's it's just an amazing kind of little group vibe you get going out there. I, I appreciate that perspective you bring because and I've never heard it said that way before that the when you take part in an individual experience, even if you train with people, no matter what happens, your job is to beat your teammates. And, Absolutely. and, and any, any way you cut it, being an adventure racer and being part of a team aside from the challenges, the physical challenges that come across, a part of your experience is embedded in the idea of helping your teammates have a good experience also. And that, it felt like that really checked off a box for you in, your, in the beginning of your racing. Totally. It, 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 it totally checked the box. And that's why, you know, I think most, uh, there are, I'd say with the, I think I, I have a spreadsheet going of all the races I've done and who I've raced with. And I, I think I'm up to like 60 some teammates. And I'd say 99% of them, I would race with any one of them again. Um, it's just, it's good experiences. It's, it's, we all have similar goals. Um, we're all out there for the same kind of reasons for the most part, depending on, you know, who you're racing with, I guess, um, that it takes very unique people to do adventure racing. And, you know, I can think of many of my track teammates who are amazing athletes, but you take sleep and food away from them and they would be a nightmare. Um, it's not that they couldn't handle it physically. It's, it's the mental side of that. So it is, it is a definitely a unique sport and only for certain type of people. Cause most of the time, if I describe what I do, people are like, you're crazy or, or I want to try that. But most of the time it's like bottom line is it's not for everyone. And um, 
and it's it's a cool it's definitely a cool thing to to get into and you either like it or you don't and even there's a lot of people i know who are great 24-hour racers but you take that race longer and the fun gets sucked out of the racing for them which i totally get right i mean it's a totally different kind of suffer fest once you get um day two day three um sometimes i question myself why i'm racing in multi-day races i did a couple of 24 hour ones this summer and like even coming off of nationals it was it was so great to just go fast and, and be done but um totally different kind of race style but um yeah it's, it's definitely unique to the type of racers that are out there so having that many teammates over the course of, of your your racing career means that you're it's a fascinating spectrum of people that you've had a chance to race alongside and race with and you said you'd race with 99 percent of them i think so again what, yeah <laughs> what, is, what is it about the one percent that they bring to the table that you you would decline a second race with them uh there's a certain level of complaining that may have been going on that you know we're all suffering and it's not like you're special that you you think your feet are more sore than my feet um it's, I, I don't know what it is. There's just some, some, I have raced with a couple of people who I just didn't feel like they contributed to the type of race experience I wanted. And maybe they're perfect for another team. Um, maybe it was just something personally going with me. I, I you know, during the race, everything was fine. I, I wouldn't say I've ever really had a problem. Um, but I just kind of, there's a couple of people that just, you know, don't check all the boxes for what I look for in a teammate. And, um, and you know, it was, it was fine. But, uh, if I got asked again, I'd probably be like, well, maybe not, you know, or ask someone else first and we'll come back to me. You know, it's just kind of how it rolls sometimes. So when you're, when you're going into a race and you have, you have teammates that you may be new to you, you've raced with before, things like that. How valuable do you find the pre-race conversation regarding about race goals, how we're going to work together? Do you feel you have to front load those conversations going into it or, do you figure it out a lot on your way on the race course? For me, I think I kind of figure it out almost the night before. Um, but it, it's, I think I know so many different people now that a lot of times when I get asked to race or I ask me I'm either against them or alongside them, or, you know, even already raced previously that I kind of know their style. I know what kind of a racer they are. So what's really clear um, along the along the way when you're working with these various teammates is that you have to work things out on the race course, either the night before or during the race. And you have to pay it. So you simultaneously have to pay attention to the experience going on in the race, the, the navigation, mm -hmm. the food, the sleep. You have to figure out your teammates along the way and you have to continue racing going forward. Totally. Do you do you do you find that when the race begins, it's. Does the conversation go down in regards to like, is it just maps and moving or do you, do you try to figure things out? So it, it's funny. Like um, I was talking to Brian when you, you interviewed uh, Justin and Brian, my, my nationals call up teams. So I, I know um, Justin quite well. I raced against him and with him many times with Brian. I've never raced with. And after 24 hours of racing, we were so only talking about race stuff. 99% of the time because of what we were doing, the pace and everything that was going on. And I really have no idea about Brian, like other than some pre-race conversations about his life, his social life, his wife, his kids. But like when you do an expedition race, you can finish a race course and know, I mean, shoot, you can know some of their deepest, darkest secrets. You, you've seen them in their lowest point. They've seen me in mine. I mean, it's amazing what your relationship is after an expedition race versus just a simple anything under probably 24 hours where, you know, people don't really get to know each other um, as well. It's just, it's just kind of funny. I'm like, you know, usually I kind of hold on to like a long paddle or a long trek and then I'll be like, Hey, tell me, tell me what you just, you know, what you've been up to or something. Whereas in a shorter race, you don't have time for that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think, I think that's, I think the part of that is a, a dynamic. There's a, a variety of factors that lead to that level of, of intimacy, that level of closeness. Cause I agree with you a thousand percent, right? You're, yeah. I always like to say that when you do a longer race, an expedition race, three days, five days, you, you will experience every single human emotion during the course of that race. Yeah. Like for the most part, you're going to, whether or not you're showing it out loud, you're feeling it inside. And I think that that's part of it. Um, and so you kind of strip away your, your outer, you're your kind of exposed, you're kind of raw because you're hungry and you're tired and, and you tend to go into this place. We all go into this place. That is, we don't, we don't access a whole lot in our day-to-day -day lives, right? We're on the couch and we're watching TV. So that's one thing. Yeah. I also think too, part of that is plain old fashioned boredom. Like after yeah. like 72 hours, like tell me about yourself. Like where'd yeah. you grow up? What'd you do? And, <laughs> 
and the stories. And, and give me the long, the long version of that. Exactly, exactly. There I was in third grade, right? And the, and the teacher wasn't nice to me. <laughs> um, but also the, the irony is, is that I've seen during races like that, that that's very often where teammates have missteps. That you're having, a, you're walking on a road and you're having a conversation. True. And you walk right past a trailhead or you miss a yes. CP. Yes. That is, I've actually heard some horror stories of that happening. I, I feel like um, I try and kind of be careful or I watch myself like, you know, in a long paddle, if I'm not with the navigator, I can just, you know, we can just go question for question and and, and hang out um, and, and discuss, you know, life's problems. But um, yeah, anytime you can tell kind of, I think I have enough experience now where I can kind of tell when the navigator and every navigator is different. I mean, Justin, that guy can be cracking a joke and then be like, oh, the checkpoint's right there. And other navigators, they lose their focus within like, you know, answering a 30 second question. So you you definitely have to be careful of those things and can't always be, you know, chatting all the time because, uh, yeah, there's definitely a, a distraction point there. And that's where communication plays a role, too, because sometimes with navigators that a navigator will be head down in the map and she's doing a great job looking at the map and her teammates may misinterpret her silence as she's lost or she's not doing well. Whereas some navigators are very verbal when they're lost and some are quiet. And therefore you have to talk about that going into the race because eventually if you're not careful, you become an observer to the navigator doing the job. And if, and if she is upside down, you don't know if they're struggling or not. And that's right. part of the challenge. Right. Yep, exactly. Yeah. I, I, it's funny that the story you were saying there a second ago about, you know, uh, conversations. I remember this, this one story I heard one time about a, a caving section that was in a race and caves are my kryptonite right? going in the ground is, is for other people. And this, this, these, these teammates were, were going into the cave and it was pretty long and pretty tight. And it took like 15 minutes to find this section. And they finally made their way to the checkpoint and they got there and they were so excited and they took a photo by the checkpoint and they were high-fiving each other in this cave and they crawled back out and they realized that they forgot to punch it. Oh. <laughs> and they had to go back into the cave and do it again. So Sometimes emotions and joy get in the way of, of, of moving quickly through a race. Um, so, so we dug a bit into the, the, the teammate dynamic, and I, I agree with you that the 99% the rule really is an effect, and that very often when people just, it's just not a good fit. And sometimes they might be a better person for a better team at a different time. And it's, it's, it's far less about them than it is about the way that I approach them and who they are. I realized that too. Talk to me a bit about equipment, training, like you are fast, right? You, you're, you're a member of the reigning national champion team, right? Team Wadali. And you went overseas and with Team Orbital, you came in eighth, I believe, in the world championships. So you're yep. quick and you're fast. <laughs> Talk to us a bit about that. How does that happen? What does your background look like? Your training? Is it a lot of training? Like for those of us sitting at home on the couch, you have a pretty good story to tell about how you got to be that fast. So there's a couple of things here. For one, um, it's funny. I'm, I'm 45 years old and a lot of people who are outside of adventure racing are like, that's crazy. How, how can you keep doing that? And then it's just like, I, honestly, in the last, I'd say in the last, like probably five to six years, maybe even maybe I'm, I don't even know if I'd go 10 years, but the last five years, um, I've been racing. So I think I started racing when I was like 28, I was pretty much done with running, which, you know, track runners don't, have that long of a lifespan really once you get in your late 20s you're it's hard to, to run fast anymore whereas adventure racing you look around at a lot of the top teams and they are in their late 30s and their early 40s it's just um experience comes into play so much that for me my training isn't nearly as intense as it used to be one is i try and race a lot but two i think so much of it is 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 your your mind can just help you know is really where the training is, right? Like day three in a race, it doesn't really matter if you haven't been doing those hundred mile bike rides. It's, it's, can you mentally push through what you're putting yourself through? Can you, you got a side wind going on and rain and it's dark and you're tired and you've been, you know, riding for hours. It's, it's, I think sometimes it, it's not really what you've been doing training wise. It's, it's really kind of more um, experience that kicks in. And so for me, that's, I think that's really how I've gotten to the point where I'm at, um, is that I already came from a very competitive background. Once I stopped running, I got into adventure racing. So I've already had that level of intensity of, of pushing through pain and, and getting it done. But now it's like, 
I've been here before. I've I've been in this state of exhaustion before. How do I how do I keep going? How do I you know push through this? And so for me, I think I have so much experience and not of you know I've done well over a hundred races. It's just it, it's kind of like um, what's the word for that? It's it's kind of like I want to call it a secret, but it's like that's what works for me is is the number of races I've done actually helps me train less now. Um, eventually, you know, eventually you'll reach a point where that's not going to work. Right. I, I, I do need to train. I'm not saying I come off the couch to race, but I feel like I used to be racing, uh, training, you know, 25 hours a week. And now I'm probably like 15 to 20. It's just like, I can back off a little bit and, um, just know that experience is going to push through. And, um, I kind of put, I kind of train for the race itself. A big thing, what I like to do is two weeks prior to a race is where I really hit it hard. Um, you know, doing two to three workouts a day, where you're kind of reminding my body of what it's like to push through being tired, switching the sports, you're just running, you're biking. And, you know, prior to that, I'm, I may only be doing one workout a day. It's just kind of, I think everybody is different and everybody finds what works for them. And for me, um, I've discovered that uh, it's a lot of listening to my body too, of how am I feeling today? Okay, I've been running a lot, so maybe I'm going to paddle today because I feel exhausted. Um, but a lot of it's just sheer experience is starting to come, you know, really helps in my favor and racing at higher levels is also kind of, I have that experience. I have that confidence to come into a race. Like, yeah, I'll admit I was, I was nervous coming into race with the Swedes there, but, um, I've also raced with Viterade, which was a top team back in May. And so I knew if I could race with them, I can race with these guys. So it's just kind of, um, an experiencing that really, helps me um, get ready for the next race, I guess. And I, I think you bring up a valid point that you, you've you built base over the years, right? Yeah. Going from a competitive background. And it's so funny, like as a, as a, as a track racer, 28 is begin is the, is the back end of that, right? People yeah. really are going like once you're there and, and that was when your adventure racing career took off. And, 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 and I can relate with the age thing and getting better as you get older. And so you took your base, your athletic, your athletic base was there for you for a long time. You layered on top of it, the necessary skill set to be a good adventure racer, which is obviously capacity when it comes to mountain biking, trail running, paddling, hopefully not rollerblading ever again. Um, and as a, as a result of that, you, you, you go into a race and you need less preparation. But for those listening at home who are new to this, that less preparation is only possible because of how much base you have over the years. And therefore, you could step into a race setting and spend two weeks beforehand and then eventually, and I'm far from an exercise physiologist, and I encourage those who are to push back on this if I'm wrong, there's eventually the law of diminishing returns. Mm-hmm. That it's that you could easily overtrain going into an event because at the age of 45, and I'm 51, the recovery gets longer in between the, the events. Totally. And it also comes kind of down to like, I mean, in general, I'm not a on the couch type person. So maybe I haven't been training, but like, um, like all summer long, I was doing landscape work. So I'm kind of like in the, I believe in the Rocky Balboa type training. Like as long as you're not sitting on the couch all day, then yes, you do need to get up when you are planning an expedition race. Even if, you know, all the experience in the world, you you still got to wake your body and your muscles and get them moving. But I think a lot of it is just kind of like, what do you do in your general day? If you unfortunately have to work at a desk or sit sit all day long, then yeah, you, you might need a little more, um, training than I might need to, because I hardly sit down until, you know, once it's dark outside. Um, yeah, and you're spot on uh, will Gad, who is a, is a, is a, a climber and he's a, a very, very accomplished adventure athlete. Um, he did the Niagara falls ice climb, really, really strong person. He talks about how for him, he has specific training days, but he never go, he never goes without a day where there's some sort of movement based activity. So if he wakes up in the morning and if he's tired from a big effort and he's kind of beat up a little bit, he may do only half a workout. He may just go for a walk. He may go for a light run. Where is the day where he does nothing? But sometimes those yeah. days are scheduled, right? Some days you just have to lay on the couch and sort of let your body recover coming off a big effort. That comes over time, right? Because you've worked at it for a long time. But that's also listening to your body and knowing that this may not be the best day to hit it hard because maybe your throat is sore in the morning or maybe you're going into a big weekend or things like that. How do you marry that training alongside nutrition? What does your diet look like in, outside of here? And by the way, adventure racers, for the record, for those of you who are listening at home, 
adventure racers are the worst people to talk to about <laughs> diet nutrition as Mary shows me her can of Mountain Dew. Um, <laughs> I will tell you, Mary, that a friend of mine who's not an adventure racer was listening to one of my earlier podcasts and was laughing out loud and we discussed nutrition and it was about ding-dongs and drinking soda, right? Yeah. And so, yeah. So walk me through the, the finely tuned <laughs> diet that you clearly have as a, as a champion adventure racer. <laughs> Do you want to know how many boxes of Count Chocula I've eaten since uh, Spain? Um, you know, it's funny. I after an expedition race, it's most people you you eat a lot of junk when you're racing, right? You're you're kind of on a sugar high for like however many days you're racing. But for me, when that when the race ends, my body still continues to like crave that. And um, I think normally I have a fair amount of sugar in my diet. Any of my friends listening would probably be laughing at that right now, but. Um, there is a certain degree where your body's still running on those kind of fuels and, and craving it. So like after a race, I, I don't think I drink any water for like the first few days after. I think I literally am only drinking like Coke or whatever's available. It's, it's really weird. But then all of a sudden I feel that shift when it's like, okay, time to start hydrating again and, and, and eating, you know, normal meals. It is also hard you know, like racing internationally, um, it kind of messes with your diet a little bit too. Cause I'm, a, I'm a fairly picky eater. Um, I don't, I'm not big into trying new things. I, I have a very bland diet. So for me, I could just eat pasta every day and, and call that good. Um, it's just, yeah, I'm probably the worst person to talk to about nutrition, but I will say, uh, if your body doesn't normally consume sugars and, and, you know, kind of occasional junk food, then I don't really think that's what you want to race on. I, I've seen more and more people who are very healthy vegetables and no, you know, no meat or whatever. And, and then they get to an adventure race and they try and race with those kind of foods and they, those don't necessarily work, but the sugary foods also don't work. Right. Because your body's just like, Whoa, what are you putting into me? So I always kind of joke that my part of my training is actually I'm eating junk food because it's what I fuel off of in a normal day. And then when I get to a race, my body's like, yeah, give me more of that. Um, I'm fine with that. So, Yeah, the, um, a very common piece of advice that I hear from guests that I've had, but also from other, from other sources is real food's important for a lot of people. Junk food's important for a lot of people. Homemade food's good for people. <laughs> the trick is to go and find what works for you. Yeah. And then inside that race course, do not introduce something brand new going into the race. Like right. that is the worst thing you could do, but that also applies to like equipment and to food and the strategy. Yeah. Like I remember one time someone gets said, I, I get a brand new pair of shorts and I'm going to wear them for this race. And mm -hmm. I was like, are you out of your mind? Because it was like, <laughs> what do you, like you train in them for three, four, five months and then yeah. you wear them in a race and things like yeah. that. Yeah. Um, and you know, variety is always the key, right? So when you talk in race food, something that might work for you on, on the first day of the race probably isn't going to work you might not even crave that later in the race. So I try and, um, you know, break up things as much as possible because you go out for 36 hour section of a race. And if you only bring one particular type, you know, one or two types of items, um, you're kind of screwed if it doesn't, uh, work out for you. Yeah. You hear from time uh, to time that there's the team that wants to eat. They decide they do a calorie count and they bring 25 cliff bars along. Yeah. The race. Uh, and after about four cliff bars, they can't, they can't manage it to get them down. Yeah, no, I, no offense to our cliff bar sponsors right. out there, right? No. They just, they just can't do it. Cliff bars are good. And, and, and yeah, it's, it's kind of crazy how that all works. Um, I see more and more new racers. That's probably the number one mistake they make is either foot care and then nutrition, which is just, you got to have the variety. I helped a guy. Um, he, I, right before C to C, it was in the, the, the expedition race in Florida in February. He asked me um, to come check his his gear and his food. And I'm like, what are you going to eat? And he showed me a Ziploc bag and it was all the same thing. I'm like, no, I'm like, go across the street to the gas station right now and just pick up some things that look, you know, something that might interest you because you're going to want those, you know, maybe your other stuff is good and all your granola or whatever. But, you know, six hours in, you got to break it up with a Snickers bar or something. I found some uh, of the bigger races, too, when I just get I just get tired of eating and they yeah. um, Later yeah. on in the races, I, I'm a big fan of Spring Energy. Spring Energy has the 300 oh, yeah. calorie fruit and oatmeal, like the, yep. the almost like the baby food packages. Yep, I just started eating those. And they just they just go right down, and it's mm -hmm. easy. And it's 300 calories in you. You walk into a transition area, you have one right away, and all of a sudden you're 300 calories ahead. Mm -hmm. um, and that's I found that that's been very successful for me because I just get tired. Later on in the race, I'm just oh no more. Yeah. Unless unless we come across like a coffee shop or a donut shop, and then it's heaven. 
and it's like finding. <laughs> right. Yeah. right. I, I always enjoy the, uh, the the story from time to time that we always tell that we're in a race in the middle of nowhere and we turn a corner and then the, you see this far off neon light in the in the in the darkness and it's like yep. this twenty four hour store and we buy all of their food. The the first gas station sandwich I ate was in a race and I was kind of slightly horrified at first that but then it was so amazing and I'm sure it had expired like previous three years ago didn't matter it was <laughs> it was the most amazing thing because it was just like I felt like something cool and it was just there and available and yeah. I have a teammate that he says that gas station empanadas are the best empanadas yeah. in the world. Oh, for sure. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So you, you mentioned foot care before. Um, for 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 many racers, whether it be a, a six-hour, 24-hour, or a multi-day race, taking care of yourself below the ankle is really a challenge. What strategies do you use to keep your, everything together down there? Uh, I've been pretty much using Gurney Goo for the last few years. It's from Steve Gurney. He's out of New Zealand. Um, it is a little hard to find sometimes in the U.S. and a little pricey. But um, I kind of got hooked on it because I met Steve when I was racing over at um, the God Zone race over there. And he was kind of like a sponsor for us that year. And so he kind of like provided us with unlimited supply of his gurney goose. So we kind of got addicted to that stuff. But um, any sort of foot lube that you anything that's going to keep that friction down in your socks. Some people just do Vaseline, there's sports stick, there's uh I don't even know runner's goo. There's so many different brands out there. And again, I think that's another part of trial and error. What works for you? Um, anything with some antibacterial is going to be obviously work. It's magic for you too. It's, it's better than nothing, but um, you know, and some people do powder. I used to do powder. It's, it's, it's kind of like what's convenient and what works for you. I'm a big believer. And um, you know, for a shorter race, you can, you know, even a six hour race, I'll still lube my feet. Um, just cause why not? And then, um, but as it gets longer, um, yeah, we'll like out in Spain, we had a section that was 20, 23 and a half hours was our first trek. Um, and we did one stop where we changed socks and relubed our feet. And I think that's, you know, those five minutes will, will bring life back into your feet and hopefully, um, help you in the end. And, and that's a great piece of advice. Cause, and I felt I'm guilty of that myself, that a, in a desire to keep moving, you will, you will ignore the pebble in your shoe or the grind on your heel and you say it'll go away. And rather than spend three, four, five minutes changing a set of socks, putting on some dry, you know, dry socks and putting on some lube, all of a sudden you've created a monster in, in yeah. on your foot. And next thing you know, it's, and then, and once it goes downhill, it just goes downhill. Like it's, it's tough to bounce back in a race from any sort of a deficit, whether it be food, whether it be something physical. Yeah. And those kind of things are, you know, super important to talk about with your teammates ahead of time, right? Like when we're packing our gear, we're like, Hey, everybody throwing an extra pair of socks and one, one, you know, one person's bringing a tube of lube that we're all going to share out there. Because if I get out there and I see my friend, like and my teammate sits down and says, I need to change my shoes. I'm like, or my socks. I'm like, wait a second. We didn't talk about this. Like, why don't I get to change my socks? So it's kind of like, you know, you kind of want to do it all at the same time and you all want to be on the same page because um, otherwise, yeah, it's, it just, you could have a problem later if, if everyone's not on the same, the same foot care type plan. How do you pick up on a teammate who might be struggling, but not talking about it? What do you keep an eye out for? Usually cause they're not talking, they're quiet. Um, anybody who drops out the back is, is never, should never be the last person on the team. You always want your slowest person or whoever's feeling like crap, you know, number two, number three, you know, when you're out there. Um, so usually the biggest thing is, you know, again, this is when it helps when you get to know your teammates so well. Um, there are some guys that I've raced with that I know when certain someone stops burping, I know that's not good. Like he is not feeling well. If he's normally, uh, you know, constantly, you know, burping, I know he's fine. But the second he stops, I'm like, well, what's going on? Are you okay? And usually the answer is no, I feel like crap. Um, so it's, it's kind of a, it helps when you do get to know your teammates, but for, most people, I think the biggest thing is when somebody gets quiet and if they start to go out the back door um, and if they say they're fine, they're probably not. And, and, you know, then the question is, well, then why, you know, what can we do to help you move faster? Um, it's, it's, yeah, it's definitely a, about awareness and um, who's doing what out there for sure. A, a common strategy that a lot of non-adventure racers have a tough time wrapping their head around is the idea of sharing gear. Yeah. Uh, and also going on tow, right? When you, mm -hmm. you, and for going on tow, for those of you who are listening is literally going on tow. Like yeah. you, you put a rope on the person behind you. It's a, rope's a strong word. It's more of a thin wire that's strong and you help pull the person along. Have you found that to be a challenge with yourself and with your teammates in terms of give me your bag, don't give me your bag, get on tow, do get on tow. Does pride get in the way? 
Uh, absolutely. This race in Spain for me was the first time, the first day. I, I'm, I think I've been on tow once in my life on foot. Um, that was when we were in China and it started basically anytime a race starts out crazy fast, that's usually hard for me because I'm kind of a ease in things a little bit more. Um, so I mean, when the tow line comes out, it's, you got to just swallow your pride and be like, okay, I need help because I am not able to keep up with the pace that we need to go. Um, you know, I, I always think it's, it's a real man can, can be towed by a woman. Uh, it's, it's, I've, I've towed in carry packs of so many guys and there's, I think I've only had one argument with one guy who's like, no, I don't need one. But um, for the most part, if you are willing to hand over your pack, you you will move faster. And maybe you're not even feeling that terrible. But it's a, just we've done some training where we just kind of share packs. And, and like when it's hot and you, you change your pack, like one person takes a turn without having a pack on for five minutes and you rotate around. And it's amazing how you get a little burst back into your stride. Yeah, you feel fine. You don't really need someone to carry your pack, but you just, you know, felt amazing for a second there. And then the person who was carrying two packs, you bring them back down to one pack and now they feel amazing because, you know, their load is lighter. So, um, yeah, there's definitely some pride that has to be, you know, swelled, but it's it whatever makes the team move faster. And I think that's a big, you know, part of being a good racer is like, hey, guys, I need help. You know, take a water bottle, give me a, you know, take some stuff out of my bag, something. Um, and, and usually, you know, most people aren't on tow for six days, right. They, they usually need it for like a day and then, or a couple hours and then, um, it, you feel better. And maybe the person who was towing you now needs your help. Um, it, it, it kind of cycles through the team. I was in a race one time where a team was passing us and they had somebody on tow and the person on tow was chatting away as if they weren't on tow. Yeah. And you could tell that that wasn't going well. <laughs> like if you're on tow, you better be working, right? It's not, you're right. not getting, it's not, and they were having a conversation as if like they was, I was like, I don't think that's really going too well right now. And later on in the race, you could tell that that was a fiction point. They yeah. needed, they, they, need, they needed some, uh, uh, um, relationship girly go, not, yeah. not foot girly go. <laughs> it was all messed up there. Um, yeah. And you know, when the photo, when the photographer comes out of the woods and snapping pictures too bad, you're on tow, like don't grab your pack back. Don't, don't come off tow just to make it look tougher. That's not how it works. <laughs> can, we, can we pause for a second? Can we, we're going to go back down the trail. Give me back my pack and we're going to do it again. Yeah. Um, there was a, there was a picture from worlds of, which my teammate was carrying my pack, which again is, is I've been fortunate that that rarely happens. And uh, like, I guess it just made my mom super concerned because she saw this picture of, of my teammate basically carrying my pack. But I'm like, I'm not going to grab my pack back just because the photographers are to make everyone at home feel, oh, Mary's fine. Exactly. It was more like, nope, I'm hurting right now. This is how it works. And that's, so, and that's the know. idea that you feel every single emotion during an adventure race. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> and you, you made an interesting point, by the way, about the idea of, of, um, of sharing a pack and going back and forth. It's one thing to say you're a, you're a good teammate when you're being the hero, right? I'm a good teammate and I'm going to carry my teammates pack. Mm -hmm. But the, the being a good teammate is sometimes saying to yourself, I need you to take my pack. I think that's more. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's kind of a, it's a kind of a two way street there with the, the person who's like, yes, I will take your pack because obviously that, you know, maybe they're feeling like crap and they don't really want to take your pack, but they're still feeling better than you. Um, so yeah, it's just kind of how, how it goes. You have to, um, yeah, be the, be the good teammate and say, I need help. And then, um, hopefully your other teammates willing to help. Yeah. And that's where, and that's where obviously you need to stay on top of your, your nutrition, right? Cause all yeah. of a sudden or, hung, I mean, hung, hunger and, fall apart and then relationships begin to fray inside the race. And maybe the team as a whole needs to turn up, you know, needs to back off for a little bit. We've had right. to do that before too, right? Like there's no point in driving your somebody into the ground because you're going to be dragging them later or helping them later. So maybe if everyone's packs are already insane, like there's some sections when you're all carrying pack rafting gear and there's no way humanly possible to add any more stuff to your pack. So the answer is that we need to slow down a little bit. Sometimes the best thing to do as a team is just gear it down a little bit and slow it down and slow it down. And when I interviewed Darren Steinbach, we just dropped his episode yesterday. He talked about how they, he was a, he was a late addition to the team for team yeah, band racing. Yeah, that was amazing. And then he just basically talk about, talk about gutsy, right? It's one thing, it's one thing to prepare for the race with months and months and months. It's one thing else to get the phone call 36 hours in advance and get on a plane yeah. um, and how the team, they made a, a, a strategy in which not to like the goal went from trying to win worlds to trying not to kill Darren. Like that yeah. was, that was their strategy. And uh, they almost, they almost didn't succeed. It sounds like they almost <laughs> killed them when they told the race. Um, Fair strategy. 
Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Try not to kill your teammates. Big rule. Um, as, so obviously you bring such a depth of experience and you bring your own, your own the level of base you have in the work and the things you've done over time. I try very hard to have the, this podcast not be a pop quiz, right? Because it's not fair to the guests to have them sort of like try to guess things out loud. But I, I can't help but notice with a hundred races that you've done with the, all the teammates that you've had over time, all of that, you clearly have had the chance to learn a lot of lessons about the world and about people and about cultures and about places. I mean, I, I don't, have you ever counted up how many countries you visited as a result uh, of I think I'm at, ni- I'm at 19 different countries right now. 19 different countries. Two, like, holy cow. Two of those were um, running brought me to those countries, but um, the rest of them are strictly adventure racing. And um, yeah, it's, it, it's, a, it's definitely an amazing, amazing way to see the world. And also too is, and I picked up on this when I when I've I've raced internationally is that the not only do you go to a different country, but you see parts of that country that ninety nine percent of visitors don't see because adventure racing takes you through towns and villages and mountains and rivers. We see places that people who live there have never seen, right? I mean, our own country. I've been, I'm sure, to to back corners of places of Wyoming or wherever that I I wouldn't, you know, people who live in you know a couple hours down the road probably have never been to. Um, but yeah, and I, sometimes I get, I've, I've had some friends that are like, um, I don't understand how you go to these countries and then you immediately leave after a race. Like, don't you want to stay and, and tour it? I'm like, no, like I saw more of the country in a race. Um, you know, I see, I see what people were, you know, we we're in South, um, South Africa and we're literally walking amongst people who are carrying buckets of water on their head and sticks on their backs. And, you know, no one's wearing shoes and in and out of huts. Um, that, you know, had you been to a major city, you probably wouldn't have ever seen that or, you know, done the tourist type bus or tour thing. You're not going to, you're not going to see that. You're not going to get to sleep in the floor of someone's hut because they, you know, they're, they're welcoming you to, um, to lay down there. Yeah. I've seen that in races too, where you hear stories from racers where they'll, they'll pass through a tiny village and all of a sudden the doors get thrown open. Please come inside, please sit down here. And and they're, and they're happy to host you. They're happy that you're a guest and they're happy and they're very proud of where they live and who they are. And they want to show you their country and they want to show you their people. Um, So I've seen that experience come alive and I've seen it very often in the documentaries about adventure racing. It talks about that. Um, And I noticed too, with worlds um, there were um, in the top 20, 11 different countries were represented. Yeah. With I think I think the the Swedes took over. Yeah, the Swedes had <laughs> That's a great probably race. Probably the the best, um, you know, the most number of Swedish teams in the top for sure. Usually, there's only you know two that are are in the top top ten. But um, yeah, it was it was a, a pretty good mix of teams up there for sure. So, what have you noticed in being American, having American culture and sensibilities? What do you notice about other countries that probably? make them more powerful adventure racers. What, what's the secret source that Sweden has? Canada, by the way, if the Canadians are listening out there, they are just amazing racers. They occasionally, right. they come over the border and they just clobber us whenever they yeah. race against us. Yeah. What do you think it is about those people in that culture that gives them such an advantage? A, a big thing is navigation. Um, orienteering is such a big thing in Europe and in other countries that we don't really have that here. And it's kind of in different parts of the U.S., I feel like. Um, yeah, people say that they can read a map, but... Maybe. I mean, it's, it's, I, I see American, I just don't see any top American navigators that can do expedition racing. Sure. We have some good orienteers, but um, I think navigation is our biggest, um, biggest problem from what I've seen and what have I, what I've experienced with who I've raced with. Um, and just the sheer, um, maybe the, maybe the terrain and what's around you, you know, in Europe, you got, you got, you got a lot more mountains over there. Whereas in the U S unless you live you know, out, out West or, you know, kind of in the, along the Appalachians or something, we don't quite have the same kind of terrain to yeah. train it. I agree um, with that. I think it's a cultural thing. I think that we don't, we, we don't carry maps in our hands as often as the Europeans yeah. do. And I think, I think they're just, it's a, it's a tougher climate. The weather's yep. more challenging. Um, also, I just think it's also just look at the data. It's a, those are fitter countries. Well, I mean, and also in, in the U S look how many more sports we have in general, we, we teach kids, you know, football and basketball are our, like, you know, um, bread and butter for, for a lot of these teams to, you know, for, for young athletes to make, make money and, and go out and, you know, be famous and be strong at something. Um, we have a lot, a lot of opportunity and, and, you know, I, I'm not sure exactly what all is, you know, some of these other countries have, you know, I'm not saying they don't have sports, but I think we have far more opportunities in our schools 
um, to give people other, other things to do, um, than, you know, adventure racing. I, I, there's a couple of programs that I'm learning about, about getting little, um, younger kids started. Um, and I think that's pretty cool. Cause I, I feel like if had, I had that chance, um, you know, I think I would have changed gears a little bit, but you know, adventure racing is an expensive sport. So if you can't get somebody to help you behind, you know, financially back you, um, that's also trouble for us in the U.S., right? We we only have a handful of companies that are usually all sponsoring the same teams, and it's usually you know pro discounts and, and gear discounts. We we don't have those one you know like Orbital that that who I race for in Sweden. They're like a water recycling company. You know they have nothing to do with adventure racing or gear, but it's like here have some money and, and go race. Um, I just don't think we have the financial support um, you know that other sports do in our country. I would agree with that. I think part of it, it's cultural with America. You're in other sports, draw a lot of the attention away. Um, we also don't have, we're not an incredibly, we're not as outdoors of people as we could be. Um, yeah. we, we tend to very often, we're, we're in this this idea where our houses are very comfortable, our couches are comfortable, our TVs are big. You know, we could Uber Eats our dinner to our front door. Like it gets <laughs> harder that way for us to get back out there. Um, I do, a friend of mine is from New Zealand um, and she talks about the Hillary Challenge, which is, oh, a, yeah. it's, yep. the, it's like the high schoolers in New Zealand yep. and they have this, it's, yep. it's, it's an amazing, it's to the point where like, I want to go and I want to, I want to see it happen. And I want to interview those kids because they're 16, 17 years old and they're, they're in the woods for three, four five days at a time. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's just I, built into their, their dynamic. And I think, you know, I mean, I think the U S is trying again, like um, USARA organization has kind of been re reorganized a little bit and they are trying to build, they're trying to bring the sport back a little bit more and build it up a little bit. Um, I, you know, and even for races and stuff, like there are so many races in the East coast and Midwest, um, which is where I've been hanging out recently. But when I was out in California, I mean, luckily when I got started racing, there was like three different race companies going on out there. Granted, we raced on the same area, every race for the most part, because permitting was so difficult. Um, whereas right now out in California, there's only one race company out there. So um, you know, I see West Coast racers actually not having the same kind of numbers um, that used to. And so it's kind of a matter of how can we kind of build the sport up again to get more people interested? Because I'm sure there's some people who have navigation skills or are willing to learn um, that they just don't really know this is really something that exists, maybe. I agree. And I think or, that's why USARA made the decision to bring national championships out West for 2022 yeah. Yeah. because they, they want to respect the region and they want to revitalize it because it's such a beautiful place to race and the mountains are high and the people are great. So I think that's part of the motivation to get the, the, the race back out West. Um, you know, and for example, like, like look now when the, in North America, you have, you have rootstock racing is putting on the endless mountains, which is yep. going to be a beautiful five day race in, in Pennsylvania. So it's good. To, it's good to see a big race return to the East coast. Uh, we've missed yes. that. Um, we have the work of AR Georgia that have, they have two races going on now. Admittedly, those are just three days each, but still those are our strong races over three days. And obviously Ben's going to be bend, right. And they're having yep. expedition Oregon, which is the race is going to be an amazing experience. Um, and then obviously Expedition Canada, right? So North yeah. America has these really, really strong options in front of them for racing. But I agree with you that the, the regional scene is really where it should be found, not just in these big mess of five days, because five days is a long time to give up to go race somewhere. Yes. It's the it's the 24 hours, it's the 36 hours, it's the eight-hour races. Back when I was racing a long time ago, I feel like there was a couple options that where you could do 48-hour races, which is kind of like a good way to kind of help ease people into expedition racing, right? Like it gives you that experience of, you know, a little sleep deprivation and, you know, maybe you're navigating through two nights. Um, it definitely gets to a little more experience. Although I am amazed how many people jump into expedition racing as their first race. I, it just blows my mind. <laughs> I interviewed um, Wheelow Nader and Wheelow was in the uh, USARA and he was the racer at the national championships who had never sat in a canoe or really ridden a bicycle. Yeah, and, he, yeah. and, and I have an interview that I have to edit and put together with him. And he's just, he's a human, human fire engine. He's amazing to get going. And so you're right about that, that the, the jumping into those races is hard. Um, I think I know that Stockville, which again is a rootstock race. I mentioned they're on those mountains roots. The, the Stockville is a great race because it's a two day race. Yep. The first day is 14 hours. So you, you race to mid camp, you camp out and then you race back the next day. So you have two days of racing back to back, but you don't have, to a full night of racing. You don't get clobbered over that, over that time, which would nukes a lot of newcomers and they have a really hard right. time doing that. Very nice. Where, where do you see the, um, with your depth of experience, what trends do you see in the sport? What, what direction do you think the sport is heading and what could, what could the sport be working on better? 
what I find interesting is the number of women in the sport. There's a lot more um, all women teams Mm -hmm. there. They're really, there's a big push for that right now. I'm actually signed up to do a 12 hour race down in Kentucky, I think in two weeks and the number of all female teams. And actually I'm racing with just one other woman and I've never done that before. It's, it's kind of interesting that I feel like that is amazing to me. Like back in the day, it was, you know, you didn't see that. Um, If there was an all woman team, it was like, Whoa, what's going on? Are you guys crazy? Or if you see one guy racing with three women, it's just like, wow. Um, whereas now I feel like there's a lot more women that are either confident in their navigating or, you know, being out at night or, or, or whatever. Um, it's pretty cool to see that that is definitely, um, definitely growing, um, especially in the U S I don't, I don't know elsewhere, but I think that's a byproduct of obviously title nine. Right, where, where we want we want equity in, in yeah. sports for women. That's yeah. one thing. I think culturally speaking, I think that women's sports has grown tremendously, and it's it's with the WNBA and the and the women's national yeah. soccer team is incredibly popular. And on top of that, too, adventure racing to their credit is formed the Women of AR, which yeah. is a, a group dedicated towards bringing women into the sport, and we're seeing the fruits of those efforts. Yep, um, I think you're I think you're spot on about that. It, it's yeah, delightful it's to see that. It, it's a sport where I, I, women can race side by side, right? I mean, mm-hmm. most of the time uh, you're racing with three guys. Um, you know, especially expedition racing is where you see a lot of the women are actually quite strong towards the end of the race, where the guys start to kind of you know peter out a little bit. Um, you know, maybe paddling is our is the one time that where you might see a little difference of of women racing side by side with guys. But um, you know, again, that's all. It all depends on who's who's in your boat and who's training and, and who's doing what out there. But um, yeah, it's pretty cool to see. And I don't, you know, I, I should dig into this for the history of the sport, but credit to the to the founders of adventure racing when it became, when it grew to larger ranks, the fact that they said, no, the premier division will be yeah. a co-ed division. That yeah. they didn't, they didn't, because that decision made so many years ago, if they said that an, an all-male team could be a premier division, we wouldn't see women adventure racing the way we do today. So, no. so credit to them for seeing that down the road. Um, and I completely agree with you that later on in races, female teammates tend to hold on much better than male teammates. We disintegrate. We become little babies. <laughs> and the women the women wrap us in their swaddling clothes and carry us to the finish line. <laughs> so aside from the, the growth of women in the sport, what do you think, what direction do you hope the, the, the community goes in? You clearly, a large part of who you are and what you do is, is round up in the sport. So your, your voice is valuable here. So what, what else do you want to see happening? I mean, honestly with how expensive racing is, if you want to keep some, I'm not saying we, you know, you race to win. Most people race to just try and finish, which is awesome. Um, but, but for, you know, for my, my case and a lot of other people, like it'd be great to have a little money in the sport, right? Like some, some incentive. It's, it's really painful to watch these obstacle courses where they get a big check at the end and and like, for what? (laughs) It's just like, like, I, I mean, the amount of gear and the abuse we do to ourselves and the amount of money and finances it takes to get there. I mean, basically anybody who does adventure racing is obviously not in it for the money. And I don't want it to become a sport where money is the goal, right? Because I think that will change. It will definitely change the dynamics of the racers, right? I mean, we're all out there for the adventure, not for the financial gain by any means. Um, uh, when I first started racing, there was actually a fair decent amount of private uh, prize money and just a lot of the short, even the shorter races, but, you know, I did the math. I think I made like 37 cents an hour. I mean, it's, you know, but was, was I in it for that? No, but it was kind of cool to just feel like, you know, Hey, maybe we, we could get our entry fee back or something. Well, right. Um, I mean, that's, and that's what you break it down to. Right? You race, you race for the cost of that race. I mean, yeah. I mean, my, yeah. my, 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 my wife I can go have is, ice cream on, you know, when I'm right. done and cause I want a little bit of cash sweet exactly. <laughs> or pay for my gas money. Yeah, you know, I, I never, definitely don't, I don't yeah. want like big prize, you know, we don't need that, but um, ideally would be to, to have a little more coverage. Um, Eco Challenge, I think, definitely brought back some life to the sport a little bit of, of being, even if it was only on Amazon Prime. So, you know, you see all these reality TV shows and they're also painful to watch because you're like, what what are they doing? Like, you know, you want some good reality TV, you know, follow some adventure racers around. But, um, you know, we're a tough sport to, to follow. And um, even, you know, Trackers don't always work and dot watching that if you don't have a little bit of media coverage, um, it, it, it kind of, you know, keeps the sport kind of hidden, I guess. Well, we definitely don't struggle for the human drama that you see in, in those enthralling TV no. shows. Right. What, what no. we struggle with is the idea is logistically speaking, capturing that human drama is very hard to do just by the fact that we throw ourselves into these incredibly complex settings. And I remember from the Eco Challenge and you were there, you were in Fiji. 
I remember the, yeah. the when the when the Estonians were trapped in the in the, the creek that was rising overnight. That was engrossing television to watch. Only possible because that poor camera person yeah. who had to carry that camera all that weight. That person was stuck in the stuck with them in that in that rising water canyon, right? And so it's really right. hard for us to capture it. Um, you know, they just had this past weekend. They had the largest um, F one race in the world. They had four hundred thousand people at a race in, in Texas to watch an, a Formula One race. Wow! And biggest numbers ever, one hundred thirty thousand more, I think, than the previous number, because Netflix has the TV show Race to Win. And um, so there, so it's called a Netflix effect where the public will, will get wrapped their heads around these sports that are fascinating. I think Amazon prime to their credit, tried that with eco challenge, but I mean, dropping a show about outdoor adventure racing in the middle of the pandemic is a hard sell. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so you were in, you were, let's, let's talk stories for a second. Cause I do want to be mindful of your time. You were in Fiji. You raced an eco challenge. Yep. yep. What, what team was that? I was on team bones. Oh, how'd that go for you? Uh, you know, we kind of expected that to be a little bit longer of a race. So we kind of took a too conservative approach. Um, it, it's interesting because when we crossed, like you didn't get your maps until each section. So you didn't really know how much was left of the race. So when we got the last piece, we're like, oh my gosh, we're going to be done tomorrow. You know, that kind of stinks. So, you know, you, you look at the top teams that crossed the finish line ahead of us. Um, and most of those teams had at least one person that ended up in the hospital or could barely function afterwards. Whereas our team, had we had two more days of racing, I think we would have done a lot of damage actually of, of catching some teams that were just kind of, who had gone, pushed really hard, which is the way to go in that race. I mean, it was a risk. They did it and it, it worked for them. Whereas we thought it'd go a little bit, you know, we were prepared for, you know, seven yeah. or eight days. So you, so you pulled it back a little bit, expecting to have to go further yeah. and longer. Yeah. And we got stuck and unfortunately we had two, one when the river was rising, we were like the first team that got held that couldn't go into the creek, which I'm thankful for. Right. But then all the back of the pack teams that were there, you know, we all started the next morning together. There was like a two hour difference where maybe we had eight hours on the next team, but they were only, you know, had to wait two hours to start behind us. So that was a little painful. And then we did get stuck in the dark zone on the river, um, the whitewater section. We only had like probably a half an hour more of technical rapids and we had to get off for 12 hours. So, I mean, that's painful, but that's, that's adventure racing, right? It, it's just how it works. Um, so for us, it wasn't our best race. We kind of had a I wouldn't say a bad taste in our mouth, but we had become the top American team. And then the last paddle we could get past, there was some misinformation there that went on. And so we had to take a little longer route, Um, but you know, it happens. And so, um, but all in all, I mean, it was, it was a cool experience from the fact of there was so much hype and so much attention on us and every village we came into people actually knew why we were there and what we were doing. And they were cheering us on. It was, it was the, the locals there were amazing. And just to be part of such a large production was very cool. It was probably the safest race I've ever done just because, I mean, they had, uh, they had helicopters and everything at, at a, at a call just waiting that if you had a problem, granted, they wanted it on camera. They wanted you to have a problem probably, but it was, it was kind of a cool experience to know that there was so much um, out there for adventure racing, which we just never get that kind of attention. I've learned with this podcast that asking a racer to pick their favorite race is like asking a parent yeah. to pick their favorite child. So, <laughs> so, so I don't ask about favorite races. I ask about experiences that you'd like to go back to. What race jumps out of you that was just a wonderful place to be and a wonderful race to do? Uh, you know, I'd go back to Alaska in a second. Um, it was, that was a tough race. It was probably the hardest race I've done. Um, and then it, it just, but the, the area was so, re, so raw, so remote, um, and then, yeah, and the, the, being there in the summer with the lack of daylight or the, all the daylight was just amazing. It just changes things so much. And, but from a culture, I'd say like South Africa was probably one of the most amazing places I've raced at. It was, it was, I don't know how to, I don't know why it just between the, the type of people that you ran into and how they just, I mean, our bikes, you know, cost more than any amount of dollar they've probably seen in their entire lives. And it's, you know, we go through their villages and, and they're just so happy to see us. And, and, um, they don't really have a clue what we're doing, you know, and my blonde hair and blue eyes, they, I was getting touched frequently that I'd get swarmed and they kept calling me an albino, <laughs> but it was just kind of cool. They've never seen, you know, they, they've hardly seen any Westerners come out that way. And, um, it was just, I don't know, it was just really cool and, and, and raw to be there um, and be, you know, be in the country and see how they are. 
see how they live. So, so the other, the flip side of that question is like, you never ask someone to pick their favorite child. You never want to pick someone to pick their least favorite child. So, <laughs> so I hesitate to ask this question. Was there a race that you recall that just fell apart from the very beginning? It just didn't uh, go the way you hoped. The world champs in Brazil in the Pantanal made me about quit the sport. Um, I heard. Okay. So talk a bit about, I heard that was a crazy race. It was like crazy. It was cr- it was crazy in that a lot of it came down to the race organization, which is unfortunate, but it really, it really came down to the logistics of the race were just, it just wasn't, um, wasn't correct. Like, you know, the, the sections were longer than they thought. And, you know, every once in a while that happens and, and we always prepare, but it, I mean, it was insane how, how it wasn't, you know, actually there's two races that I can think of. There was a race in British Columbia, um, that our gear was never where it was supposed to be that the again it was just a logistical nightmare that they didn't i don't know they didn't account for how fast fast teams were moving and how slow slow teams were moving and we'd get there and none of our stuff was there we'd literally have to wait and i heard some teams had to wait like you know hours like 12 hours for their resupply bin and you you know in a race you can't really move forward unless you get what you need right if, if you're going on to a trek section you can't you know if it was only an hour sure i'd be at my bike <laughs> Um, I mean, at one point we were liking in our neoprene um, kayaking shoes because our beer, our get, our bin was not takeout, but we had paddled it with our bikes in the boat and then we didn't want to wait. So we just rode in our, um, you know, no helmets, no bike shoes. And we just, but we wanted to, you know, keep moving in it, but it was just horrible. <laughs> yeah. That's a, so, that's a tough, that's logistically. Cause you come, you come roaring into the TA and you want to get yeah. moving and you're, and you're probably towards the pointy end of the race. Next thing you know, there's no, there's no place to go. Right. And it's like, you know, I, I mean, again, it sometimes stuff happens, a, a truck might break down, whatever, but when it happens repeatedly within a race, you're like, whoa, what is going on? This isn't fun. This is almost dangerous. You know, things, things, um, can go dark very, very quickly and make you kind of go, whoa. And, you know, the conditions in Brazil were, it was, you know, it was so hot. And so um, you, you'd be coming to a creek and just be like, oh, I'm going to go sit in that creek. But the creek was like sitting in a hot tub. Like it almost made you feel ill. So it was just, it was just a horrible, horrible place to have an adventure race. Um, you know, it's flat for the most part, but it's just the, the climate. And then, the, yeah, the sections being a, uh, way longer than predicted made things very difficult. And wasn't there a situation too where all the teams were out in the jungle and there's no way to get back? Like there was, the, you were, you were out there, the transport back was challenging. Um, well, at one point they put the race on hold because the, the, the three lead teams hadn't checked in and made it through the next section. That was only supposed to be, I don't know, it's supposed to be like 18 hours or 15 hours. And they were out for like 24. And you know, when Seagate, has been out in a section, you, it kind of makes you worry for the next teams. Like what is going on for them? Um, and it was, you know, somebody had radioed for help and they just realized that the navigation there was so horrible going through this, you know, um, swampland that it was like, um, they just didn't plan for that and, and how to help teams that needed it. So like you, when you have your top three experienced teams are out there struggling, well, what are we going to do with the back of the pack teams? You know, they're not going to make it. So yeah, they, we literally got held at a TA for, I think we were there for almost a full day waiting for planes to come in and take out people three at a time. I mean, it was just, and then we're flying over the area where we were supposed to be racing in our pack grass. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm very thankful I'm in a plane right now. So but, it, um, it says in a crazy sport, that's a crazy moment. Yeah. Like totally when we're crazy. saying that, right. When we're yeah. saying that is like, holy cow. Oh yeah. my goodness. You know, when the. The, the, the plane is this tiny little plane and they're like, oh, we don't have room for you because we're overweight. <laughs> you and your pack wait for the next plane where the guy's like, you know, oh, we need some fuel. I mean, it was just, yeah, it was chaos. And you're just like, okay, we could also die in this plane garage. Maybe I'd rather be, you know, fighting the stingrays and the crocodiles in the, in the swampland. I don't, I don't know. It was just, it was one of those races that it was just hard to keep, keep driving because Things just kept going wrong. And, and for those listening at home, you too can take part in the glory yeah. adventure that is found <laughs> in adventure racing. Very nice. Um, so as, as we wrap things up here, Mary, I want to thank you for your time. You, uh, I, I want to get you back to, to talk more about your, your racing experience because the depth of experience you have is just is off the charts. What's next for you? What's your next? You mentioned, is the fig the race you're doing? Yeah, now? the fig. Yeah. Look yeah, at me. I'm, Look at me guessing that. <laughs> yeah, I've never done that race. And uh, it seemed like 12 hours was a reasonable distance to come back from an expedition race and kind of get me moving again. Um, 
I'm going to try and at least get one or two runs in before I go do that race. But um, yeah, and I'm racing with another woman. So that's going to be interesting because I've never, I've never raced on an all women team. Um, so that's going to be fun. And, um, and then, yeah, I might jump in another race. That's the following weekend is down in um, Alabama. Kind of seems if I'm already in Kentucky, I might as well go a little further down to Alabama, but I haven't, I haven't locked that one in yet. There's some stuff kind of going on that I might need to pass on that one, but I hope, I hope it works. But um, yeah, I'm always kind of getting antsy for when's the next one. Um, and I will be with team bones. We're going to head to Panama in February. That's the first um, one of the, the earliest races of the world series. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of at this point also in my racing career where I kind of just want to race where I've never raced before. Um, and so Panama is a country I've never been to. And I think that would be pretty cool. Um, and you start, well, you're, that'd be your 20th country. You're starting to run out of countries. I know. <laughs> <laughs> there's there's still a lot more out there <laughs> yeah exactly exactly well well mary thank you very much for your time it's been a pleasure to have you on the dark zone and we look forward to your racing and all the best thanks thanks for having me